Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and I want to help you build a plan to become the kind of nonprofit leader you want to be. Now, speaking of someone who can help you with your plan, I had a fantastic and fascinating conversation in this episode with Zoot Velasco, who brings wonderful experience as an author, researcher, executive director, podcaster, and even a breakdancer. Yes, you heard that right, a breakdancer. I'm not sure how active Zoot is in that arena, but he is a multi-talented guy that has lots to offer this conversation. And if you're wondering what this nonprofit renaissance man has to say, well, it's a lot. And much of what he has to say is contrary to what many of us have grown up learning about leadership in the nonprofit sector. For example, big galas, maybe not. What about this focus we have on philanthropic revenue? Well, maybe we should be thinking about earned revenue instead. Wondering how your nonprofit is going to survive in difficult economic conditions? Zoot actually researched that exact question and found the key characteristics that define those that not only survived, but thrived. All of these questions and more will be answered in this wonderful conversation Zoot and I had. This is episode number 156, and you'll want to check out the show notes for this episode in particular. Just go to the news or the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com. And you can find out all about the resources Zoot and I discuss, as well as all that he's doing as a writer, as a teacher, as a researcher, and yes, indeed, a podcaster. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Zoot Velasco. Zoot, thank you for joining me on the path. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks I'm for asking. I'm excited about this conversation. You and I are connecting across the U.S., but you are in the middle of some of the best topics that I know our nonprofit leaders and those listening will appreciate. And you've been doing research and publication, of course, teaching, consulting, and you found some rather remarkable elements and frankly, surprising things that I think nonprofit leaders will be interested to learn more. In fact, I've titled this episode. You know, everything we believe you suggest about nonprofit fundraising is wrong. Why do you say that? Well, I say that for small nonprofits, not for all nonprofits. Good point. So uh, it's very important to make that clarification that what works for a large organization does not necessarily work for a small organization. And if small organizations are doing what they think they should be doing based on what large organizations are doing, everything they think is wrong. <laughs> Great clarification. And you're right. And I think many of uh, you and I both have colleagues and friends in the sector that that grew up probably learning from the large nonprofits. So is there an example Zoo, that you would say, here's a, a particular highlight in terms of what works for the big ones won't work for you in a smaller setting? Well, sure. Let me ask you, Patton, if I were to say to you, nonprofit fundraising, uh, you are a CEO you have to, I'm the board member, you have to go out and, and do some nonprofit fundraising. What is it you think of that you should be doing? Well, what I would do or what you think what, that many you know, do? What most, what do you think most CEOs of an organization would say? Special events. A special special event. events, like yep. the big gala, right? Exactly right. Um, they might say major donors, courting major donors. They Indeed. might say grant writing, 
right? Direct mail, different various annual fund strategies. Yeah. Yeah. So none of that is by far, none of that is, is even close to the most important things. Wow. So this is what, um, this is what I found and I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a little history. So uh, I ran an organization, I ran cultural centers for 23 years yeah. and I ran one in Fullerton, California uh, that grew 400% during the great recession when everybody else was shrinking. And um, as a result of that, people asked me to speak about it. How did we do it? Why, you know, what were we doing? And my marketing director says, you know, you would save a lot of time if you just wrote a book and hand them a book. <laughs> <laughs> so I was speaking everywhere. Yes. So I, so I wrote a book called the, the first hundred days, uh, leading small nonprofits out of the wilderness. It's on Amazon. And I would just hand people the book. And um, eventually uh, the president of a university read my book um, was in my rotary club and offered me a scholarship to their nonprofit MBA program. So wow. I went through that. Another person read the book and asked me to start a nonprofit program at um, Cal State Long Beach, which ended up moving to, to uh, Cal Poly Pomona. And I still teach that today. And then I got put on the board of the Gianneschi Center at Cal State Fullerton, which I eventually ended up taking over. So I ended up going from running art centers and being a former break dancer to, <laughs> um, to end up becoming a business professor and running uh, programs in, and being, you know, kind of a, a thought leader of this sector. So as I come to the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton, I realized that research is in our name and I wanted to do, I could do any research pro program I wanted. And I decided what I wanted to do was see if we were an anomaly, if there were others that were small and grew to large during the great recession. So I took all of the, um, all of the nonprofits in, and by the way, I hate the word nonprofits. I like, I'm kicking myself every time we, I use we, it. We should change that, shouldn't we? Yes. So I, I took all of the charitable organizations in Orange County and the Inland Empire of California, which is an area that comprises the two largest counties area-wise in the United States, I believe, which is Riverside and San Bernardino County. And when you take those three counties together, they look exactly demographically like the United States. They have the same urban to rural mix. They have the same Republican to Democrat mix, the same. The only difference is that there's a little higher Asian population in these three California counties than in the U.S., but okay. otherwise they almost exactly mirror the U.S. So I looked at them during the Great Recession from 2008 to 2012, and I saw which ones did well. And out of 6,450 organizations, only 29 grew from small to large and continued to grow after the recession was over. Wow. There, were, there was a group that grew and then after the recession, they shrunk back down or they went out of business. Uh, so only 29 out of almost 6,500 organizations were able to um, pull off this hat trick. So I interviewed them and did a research project that led to the, my latest book, which also led to a series of training that I do at Cal State Fullerton. And by the way, the training uh, is on Zoom, so anybody can, uh, can yeah. go to that. Excellent. And I, I, I know that uh, if people are interested in any of this, you'll probably have it in your show notes, but they can just put my name in zootvelasco.com and all the stuff will come up, my books and my training. But um, when I did this research project, I was astounded 
that not only did everyone have the, the same things in common with what I did at my little cultural center, but all 29 of these, what I call the recession stars that grew during the recession, all 29 of them um, grew on one thing, which was earned income. There not it grants, is. Yep. Not grants, not major donors, not galas. As a matter of fact, I did a whole separate research project on galas and found that galas, by and large, generally lose money. Right. Not surprised there, but interesting that everyone still seems to focus on, although perhaps the pandemic has, uh, I was going to ask you that exact question. Maybe the pandemic has refocused or reoriented our approach to special events. Yeah, I think it totally did. And for some organizations, they'll, they'll keep doing that. But for some, they can't wait to get back to their galas because they, yeah. they miss the, the touch, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah. But, you know, what what I say to people and this is this is I don't want to get too far off on a tangent here. But what I say to people is the big gala is probably the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do events wise is have many small events throughout the year, not one big gala and have other people producing those events for you like you know, have your board produce a small event, have Let them host it in their homes yeah, or something like that. Your alumni, your volunteers, your support groups, um, yeah. th- those people that are social butterflies within your group, having them produce something small. And, you know, if you had 12 small events a year, you would probably make 10 times what you'd make on a gala in net profits, yep. even though the gross may look smaller. What people don't consider when they're doing a gala is they never count their staff time. Exactly. The time and labor intensity that requires. And if they did, they'd find out that their galas are losing money. And then they'll say, well, it's a friend raiser. That's more important. Yes. And I say, well, doing, you know, doing a quarterly small event four times a year would be a much better friend raiser than one big gala once a year. Couldn't agree more. And you probably get the right attendance too, wouldn't you, Zoot? Not everybody Absolutely. wants to go to your big gala in the first place. And Absolutely. so spreading it out would be better. Yeah. So I just started a new, um, I'm still doing all these jobs that we've talked about, you know, running the center and teaching <laughs> and all that. But I took on a new job because I wanted to, I wanted to get back into the field um, of not just telling other people what to do, but doing it myself and making sure my advice works. So July 1st, I, I, I started as a director of a, of a college foundation raising money for scholarships. Good grief. And in nine months now, we've doubled our endowment. We've raised $750,000 for a, for a um, social enterprise program that we're starting. And instead of doing the big gala, which I stopped, we're doing smaller events. And just in the nine months, we've netted double what we would have netted on a gala. Yeah, and we've put almost no outlay for it. It's fantastic, but it begs the question. And I'm going to come back to your earned income stars because that is indeed a fascinating and important headline. But I got to ask you personally, how do you stay organized? I work with many nonprofit <laughs> leaders who are, are, you know, in some cases overwhelmed, drowning in the volume of their world. You are taking on more. How do you do it? Well, I, I teach... I teach a, a soft skills for business class at Cal State Fullerton to you know regular undergrads. It's a junior level class. And one of the things we teach in there is time management. And yes. I tell my students what works for me. I give them three different time management methods, but one of them is my method, which is what works for me, which is 
every time I have an idea or anything has to be done, it, it, it goes, if it has to be done, it has, goes in my calendar. If it's an idea, it goes into my, uh, I email it to myself from my phone. And so I use my inbox as a to-do list and I, everything goes on my calendar, including like wow. if I just want to once a week catch up on things, I'll put three hours of catch up on my calendar. So I live by my calendar. Like I have a meeting directly after this meeting. And then I don't know what I'm doing after that until I look at my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> but so, but you block that, that kind of work time, so to speak, obviously, or yeah. how, yeah. I mean, obviously I block, been... I block my weekend time with my wife. I block everything. And I have a little secret that I tell my students. Uh, I used to have a cat that passed away named Calloway. And I would put in my calendar meeting with Mr. Calloway because my <laughs> my assistant and some other staff they would, would share know. my calendar. And and I would, you know, they were like, why are you always meeting with this Mr. Calloway? And I was like, that's when I don't want to be bothered. That's <laughs> my cat. <laughs> well, but again, you've been prolific in your writing, your research, the project, the course design. So I, I take it those become blocks of time. Yeah. I just find a lot of nonprofit leaders just get buried in the minutiae of meetings and not really get things done. And clearly I'm you good are. At, I think I'm good at departmentalizing and I'm also ADHD. I get really bored if I don't have something to do. <laughs> so um, I, you know, during winter break and, and summer break, I load myself up with, with projects that are not related to, you know, whatever my school time projects gotcha. are. So I do all my podcasting in the winter break. I do all my book writing in the summer break. Uh, although I wrote this last book in the winter break. Uh, too, because I I wanted to get it out um, <laughs> when as the pandemic was ending, because I thought we might have the similar uh, so, uh, kind of a similar situation to what the Great Recession was. So. Right. Right. Well, and, and let me go back then, because that is relevant. And obviously, as economic times are uncertain, let's go back to those earned income stars that your last round of recession research identified. Were, were many of them? Did many of them add? earned revenue streams? Were they doing it already? What were some of the characteristics you found in those, those uh, particular organizations? Well, let me explain what I call a recession star. A recession okay. star is an organization that was under a million dollars to start with uh, in 2008. And by 2012, was uh, had grown by over 100% and over a million dollars both. They had to do both. Okay. So there's 29 of them out of, like I said, almost 6,500 organizations. And um, one thing to kind of put this all in context is if you take these three counties, there's $12 billion a year in nonprofit income in these three counties. 46% went to just four hospitals, 65% went, went to healthcare. Um, and the organizations over a million dollars were only 11% of organizations, but they took in 94% of income. So think about that. Yeah, right. Uh, organizations under $200,000. So these are really tiny organizations, 74%. And they took in 3% of income. So there's this organizations in the middle that are growing from under, you know, uh, from, from like 200,000, trying to get over a million. Those organizations that are growing, there's about 15% of them, and they're getting about 3% of the income. So wow. this, this is the group that I'm studying. And, yes. and um, like I said, only 29 were able to do it. So of, of those 29, and by the way, if you do national, if you, if you look at national statistics, 
earned income streams is between 70 and 80% of all income. Now, the, the Center for Charitable Statistics in 2015 stopped reporting earned income because they wanted, and if you look at it, it used to say uh, nonprofit revenue, and now it says nonprofit donations on their, on their statistical analysis. And that's because they, they're, they're getting funded, I think, by what a good friend of mine calls the fundraising industrial complex. Yeah, you know, the so they don't want to talk are, about, yep. they don't want to talk about earned income, but in 2014, the last year they reported it, 50% of all nonprofits in, you know, of all charitable organizations in the country got their money from fees and services. 50% was fees and services and 23% were government contracts, which when you put that together, that's all earned income. You yes. put that together, that's 73%. Are they blending it in? Or are they just not covering or not reporting it at all? They're not reporting it at all. They've okay. taken it out of the pie completely. Yep. So, um, and just so that people understand what I'm talking about, when I say earned income, you base most earned income is either social enterprise, meaning that you're selling something like a business that generates money, it generates right. a profit. Yep. So social enterprise that's, that serves your mission, but it also generates a profit or government contracts, which is not government grants. Those are two different things. Okay. Grants is not yeah. earned income right. because it's, it's seed money, but contracts are earned income because you can get them year after year after year. And it's a contract for service. So it's basically the same as a, a fee. You're, you're, you're providing a service and they're paying for it. So that is earned income. And then the third pot of earned income would be fees for service. So like a membership fee or ticket sales for a concert, yeah, uh, yeah. all those kinds of things. And every organization has one, if not all three of these types of revenue. And they don't focus on them. They focus on those, you know, major donors and those grants and those galas. Indeed. And they don't focus on their biggest source most people's biggest source of revenue, which is these earned income streams. So of these of these uh, recession stars, uh, it was pretty evenly matched. About a quarter of them made their money on, on a social enterprise entirely, 100%. A quarter of them, 100% government grants. A quarter of them, 100% fees for service. And a quarter of them were kind of your traditional organizations that had a mix of ways to get money, but a, a large portion of it was um was earned incomes like they maybe they ran a thrift shop or uh or a pet center who sold collars and leashes and pet right. food and 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 licenses it confirms the advice i think you will offer which is these three are available just about anybody in other words if they're listeners right now thinking well we just don't have any earned revenue opportunities your point is yes you do yeah, I mean, you can name any like I've had people say I'm a homeless shelter. I don't have earned the revenue. Well, who who do you get your government contracts from? Because right. you can't be a homeless shelter and not be getting government contracts because you're providing the service the government would have to provide if you weren't there. Oh, it's that's fascinating. And it makes me think about and again, uh, part of my career, I grew up in the, the fundraising complex, uh, I will acknowledge. But and and everything we do, our staffing models are based toward that philanthropic dollar. Our boards are often oriented, recruited and trained, so to speak, to be there. Would you suggest, obviously, that then staffing and board dynamics change along these same lines? Absolutely. And, you know, the reason I say that this only applies to small organizations is because 
once you get over a million dollars, you figured out your earned income piece, and then you can go after the major donors and the grants, the bigger grants, and the you know you can hire a grant writer and a fundraising director and all that stuff. But I think for small organizations, they should not be focused so much on a fundraiser, quote unquote. Everyone in the organization should be a fundraiser and working on you know the the things that make the most uh that that make the most difference which is yes. earned income first your annual appeal is really important everybody should have one it's it's like it's like found money it's something you know, all you have to do is send out an appeal twice a year and you're going to get money yep um you know and 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 then smaller events that are not so labor intensive for staff those those three things would make a huge difference in most small organizations but they're not focused on that so i take it you've changed in well, not change, you reinforce this in your teaching, coaching, and consulting. In other Absolutely. words, as opposed to many, many leaders who are going to fundraising workshops are simply uh, narrowly focusing on that. Pat, and I'll tell you something really funny, but not funny. When, <laughs> when I was running the GNSU Center full-time, we would have these things called G3X conversations, which was basically bringing guest speakers every month to talk about a different subject. Right. And if I had anything with the word fundraising in it, I'd sell out. <laughs> but if I had if I had something called marketing, nobody would show up. But most small organizations should be much more focused on their marketing than their fundraising. And there, you know, the subject is meh. You know, it's boring to them. They, no, they have they no interest it. in it. Right. All right, but that, that's two words ultimately we need to eliminate from the vocabulary here, right? Nonprofit and fundraising, you think both are problematic, <laughs> oh, right? In and donor, vocabulary. I would get rid of the word donor too. <laughs> yeah. I hate the word donor. I mean, uh, I had a, a great, I had a great um, mentor that said, donors are people who give blood <laughs> 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 or they give old clothes to the Salvation Army. People are giving money. They're investing in you. They're investors. They're not donors. That's, uh, I couldn't agree more. Well, and in fact, you've been a great proponent of something else. I think in our conversation prior to recording, you talked about the importance of strategic networking and strategic partnerships. Maybe could you expand on that? Is that something that you also found? I believe some of these successful organizations were very good at that. And so maybe you could expand further. Yeah. So there, there were about seven things that we all had in common, these 29 recession stars. And uh, the first thing was they were all led by someone who had some training as a leader, whether it was in a church group or an MBA program, it didn't matter. The, the difference was that all of them had had some training in leadership. And um, I think you know, I think you can find a great leadership program that's free through churches, through um, uh, other charitable organizations, through, you know, uh, collaboratives. They don't, you don't have, have to go be out an and MBA. get an MBA. Yeah, no. got it. Got it. But um, that was the first thing. The second thing that, and, and this is the order that they mentioned them in. And it's funny that everyone I interviewed mentioned the same things in the same order. Wow. Um, uh, now, leadership, they didn't mention. That was something I picked up on because they were all fantastic leaders. And I asked them if they'd ever had any training. And every single one of them had had training somewhere. There was evidence of that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, some of them were just church group training, which was fine. Okay. Um, right. But the second thing, that, which was really the first thing that everyone said, was strategic partnerships. And, um, you know, I, 
I have this little graphic in the book that I call the pyramid of doom, which is, <laughs> which is where, you know, a, a, a somebody wants to start an organization and, and they say, Oh, I see a need. I want to start an organization. Yep. And if, you know, and it's all about the donor and not about the need. It's not about the mission. It's about me. I'm the donor. And you know, somebody else could be doing the same thing down the road. I don't like the way they're doing it. I'm going to start my organization. They want to be their own savior, don't they? Right. Yeah. For and they, cause. You know, it's like the it's like the person that wants to start a restaurant to feed everybody, and then they go out of business in the first year, and they put all their money into it because it's really about them. It's not about what people want or need. Right. Um, and you know, the the first thing anybody in business will tell you is you have to find out what your customer wants, right? So what they'll do is they'll say, "Oh, there's this great need. I just got to now go out and get the funding. And once I get the funding, I can do this need." And they're climbing the pyramid of doom. And if anybody else to, starts to climb with them, they'll push them away. They'll say, you're not doing it the way I want it done. You're not doing it my way. So go help somebody else. And they're always alone climbing this pyramid. Yep. The people who are the recession stars, they did what I call the seven-step cycle of success, which you know sounds like a self-help topic, but <laughs> that's does, kind but of good. on purpose because yeah. I wrote a book. But Exactly. You know, the first thing is they identify there's a need and then they go out. And the second thing they do is not look for funding. None of the people I interviewed had any concern about funding. None of them took fundraising courses or hired a fundraiser. Every single one of my organizations had no fundraiser on staff while wow. they were growing. They, they hired fundraisers once they got over a million dollars, yep. some of them, yep. but none of them to a person had a professional fundraiser on staff. So the second thing they did was gather allies to, their, to address the need. And I'll give you a great example of this. There's an organization in Fullerton, was one of the set recession stars called Solidarity. And, and if you listen to my podcast, 501c3bs, you'll, you'll hear all the recession stars talking about their organizations. And there's one there on Solidarity. But, um, Solidarity, they, they went out, uh, they, were, they were kind of wealthy, young people of color from good, great neighborhoods and a church, and they didn't like the way their church was talking about the poor. They felt like they were very condescending. Right. And so they decided to leave their homes, get an apartment in the poor side of town. They, they, they talked about the first time they had roaches and what an experience that was, and you know, they're because they're all well-to-do people. Yeah, but, they hadn't experienced that, had they? Yeah. Right. But they're people of color that want to do something in the poor side of town. So they get an apartment there. They actually live there. They go out and they try to gather allies. You know, they, they try to learn the neighborhood. So they're talking to businesses they're talking to schools they're talking to parks. And in the middle of this, they started in 2008. In the middle of this, the recession hits and they have no money to start with, Right. And the recession hits and they find out that all the summer camps in town are going to be shut down for the summer. Right. And so they gathered allies to start a summer camp. The park said, well, we'll give you the park space, but we can't give you any money. And then uh, somebody else said, well, we'll give you some paints, but we can't give you any help. And somebody else said, oh, you know, I could teach dance. I used to teach dance. And so yeah, but, yeah. But by hook and by crook, they put together a summer camp for kids in the poor side of town with no money, zero money. And this is what 
makes a success is they weren't focused on money. They were focused on resources. And we forget that we live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world with tons of resources. So they put this together and it was a success. And because of that, now they had a network in that part of town to do their next project, which was a social enterprise t-shirt business modeled after Homeboy Industries. Exactly. And they, they put that together Three years later, they're making almost a half a million dollars a year on this T-shirt business, and they sell it to the youth that are doing the work. And now the youth own the T-shirt business, and they go on and start a coffee business. So they ended up um, getting grants, not because they ever wrote a grant, but because their allies and partners said, oh, we get these grants. Let's put you on it. And the next thing you know, they're doing AmeriCorps volunteers. And the next thing you know, they're on these all these grants for workforce investment that they didn't write, somebody else wrote for them because they were allies. So second step is they gather these people, then they led them to the summer school or summer camp. Then they put together a plan on how to do it. They do the work, tell everyone about it. Now they have a network they can grow and now they're back to a new need and they're starting the circle all over again, but at a higher level of success. And by 2012, they went from 150,000 a year to a million dollars a year budget, and they continue to grow to this day. It's fantastic. And again, reinforcing your point that they they did most organizations would reverse that sequence, right? So they'd go for a big external yep. grant, raise try to raise money to do something they think would work, and they in fact went into that community and first forged those relationships, which in turn ultimately did raise a lot of money. Yeah, and it's funny because the 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 pyramid pyramid of doom people will call me as a <laughs> as a consultant, yeah. and they'll they'll want to con- me to consult with them, and I'll tell them basically what I'm telling you. Oh no, that's that's all wrong, and yeah. they'll never call me again. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and they'll they'll you know five they'll years learn later. The hard way. Well, they won't learn. They won't learn. Five years later, they're still working out of their garage at the same level, putting their own money in and nobody else helping them. Um, You know, so probably doing a gala, probably doing a gala every year trying to raise money, right? Yeah. And, you know, this pyramid of doom mentality, the problem with is it never goes out of business because the the founder's ego is so invested in it. They'll keep it going for, for you know, 20 years until they die. (laughs) Yeah. Sad, but true. so let me ask you about something else that you have been, uh, again, involved in. You you talk about, what do you mean by social impact leadership methods? Social impact leadership methods. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about raising funds, I hate the word fundraising because <laughs> fundraising I'm to the is, list of bad terms. Yeah. Well, it's just all those things that we talked about. That's what people think about. I'm into resource raising um, because... If, you, if you're going to go out and you're going to find strategic allies and you're going to raise resources and that's going to lead to funding, if that's the method that works, then let's not talk about fundraising. Let's talk about impact, raising yep. your impact. Yep. So that's why I call it social impact. Um, there was someone, I can't remember who, who had the idea, let's stop calling ourselves nonprofits because our goal in life is not to not make a profit. Exactly. Our goal in life is to create a mission and help organizations with their imp- uh, and create an impact in the community. So let's call ourselves social profit organizations. So if we're social profit organizations, then we should be making social impact. That should be our goal in life, impacting our communities. Makes perfect sense. 
And again, it reinforces several of the things you've already shared. And I hope, and I'm already confident our listeners are reframing many of the things they've likely grown up in, so to speak, in their nonprofit leadership. Um, Nothing, Zoot, you have said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you say that the first hundred days of new leadership defines an organization, the first hundred days. Talk about that and why you came to that conclusion. Well, the first hundred days for a new leader defines whether they're going to be successful or not. All right, good. And, And the reason is because when you come in as a new leader in an organization that is in any way broken, um, now, if the organization's sailing along, it, this, this might be kind of different, but if your organization has any challenges or is in any way broken and you're the new leader coming in, they're going to give you about a 100-day honeymoon period to go along with you whether they like it or not. But within that 100-day period, they're, they're going to evaluate whether you're worthy to follow. And at the end of that 100 days, they're going to decide whether they're going to follow you or not. So that's about your honeymoon period. And so, you, you know, I had a great management teacher once that told me um, that people hate change and they will not do change unless you wipe everything out like a hurricane and rebuild, which takes a long time, or right. you make incremental changes like evolution, which takes a long time. And his, his point was that change takes a long time period. Of course, this trainer trained people for government jobs. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, I, I've, I have one bone to pick with that philosophy, which is that there is one time when you can make great change, uh, and that is in your first 100 days. And it helps if the change is not your change, but their change. Because I, I don't want to do your change, Patton, if you're my new leader but I want to do my change. I want to do what I think needs to be changed. So if you can get a consensus from people about what needs to be changed and lead them through that change, you're going to be the leader everybody wants. Is change management then among the things, in other words, if, if you're helping me, I'm going to be a new leader. And I now realize to your point, the importance of the first hundred days to my leadership. Are there anything else that I should focus on or anything, any other advice you give folks that are moving into that kind of role in that first period? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing that I, I tell people when I come into a new job is I'm not going to change anything for 90 days. I'm yeah. just going to listen yeah. to you and find out what needs to be changed. Obviously, if there's some emergency, you have to fix that. But, um, but you know, my, my job is to find out what needs to be changed in this first 90 days and make a plan to change it. So by the end of that first 100 days, I've done a listening tour. I know what other people think needs to be changed. I have put together a a retreat that's a stakeholder retreat, not just a board retreat, but a stakeholder retreat, meaning that anyone who's a major stakeholder, which could be longtime volunteers, senior staff, um, uh, board members, longtime uh, investors in our organizations, meaning what most people would call donors. Yeah, right. Uh, Having all those people at the table and saying and getting a consensus on what needs to be changed and then having a plan that's not my plan now that's going to go in a drawer and nobody's going to look at it again it's a everybody's plan and i'm going to hold my staff to deadlines based on that plan and budget based on that plan so that when i'm checking in with them periodically i'm going to find out are they on deadline and within budget to do the things in our plan and um 
the worst thing that happens, people will hire me as a consultant to go do a strategic plan for them. And then they'll throw it in a drawer and never look at it. Again. Exactly. Right. Uh, they did Same it because here. a grant told them they had to do it. Right. Right. So if you want your plan to mean something, it has to start with a listening tour and an evaluation report. And then you constantly are judging your staff by those objectives. Are they within budget? Are they within time frame? Makes perfect sense. Do you hold the uh, board accountable? How, how have you, if at all, evolved in, in your relationship with your boards? Well, let's face it. Most boards are not very effective. And, <laughs> you know, if you go to any board source or any of the websites that do board um, data, they'll tell you. Agreed. Uh, I think it's 80 some, I think it's 80 some percent of board members don't even know their own mission statement. Um, so most, most boards don't even know what they're supposed to be doing as a board. Yeah. They do what they think they're supposed to be doing based on what they heard from other board members or what they learned from another board, which also was not a good board. So, so a lot of board members are just kind of reinforcing stereotypes that they learned in, in another ineffective board and not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And they don't really understand the relationship with the CEO and the staff. So, um, you know, I could do a whole podcast with you just on. <laughs> and we board. might have to do another one. I, but in, 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 in a nutshell, if, if that's even possible. So if I'm, if I'm arriving to an organization with a board like that, I mean, I got to shake it up, right? Or not. Um, so here's the thing about a board. If you are a strong CEO with a weak board, you might want to wait until your first year is out of the way before you shake it up because gotcha. you're going to get more done with a weak board than if you shake things up right off the bat. That should probably be the last thing you change. Interesting. If, if yep. your board is not obstructionist, then that might be the last thing you change because you're going to, if you're a good CEO and you know what you're doing, then then you don't need a strong board to, to make effective change. However, if you've never done this before, you're going to have to find mentors within your board or without your board. Um, and, and that's going to be really important. It's great advice. Whether the official board, you know, I've, I've used Keith Ferrazzi's term, you know, you, you need a personal board of directors if you're not getting that kind of, uh, I guess, mentorship, right, from yeah. your actual board. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the board structure can be an opportunity for you to get things done um, and then create the board you want down the road. Yeah, that's well put. Last round of questions. This is fantastic. What's next for you? I mean, sounds are you having fun now that you're back in? I notice I'm not going to use the term fundraising, but you're in resource generation again. You're active, actively managing again. What do you think? You know, I'm having fun. I mean, my uh, years and years and years ago, when I first started in this road, um, I had to make a decision whether I wanted to be part of large organizations that would affect major change in a, in a shallow way or be part of a small organization that would affect major change on a local level in a big way. And I made the decision that I liked the latter. I really wanted to see you know, the change in my community that I was making and, and do a, a large change to a small community rather than be in a, in a giant ocean having, you know, maybe uh, very surface changes that, that trickle down. So that's, that's how I've kind of uh, set my road and I like doing that. 
And I can see myself doing that probably even when I retire. I, I enjoy that. But my big focus personally right now is that I'm about seven years from retirement age. So I'm really trying to, <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to figure out how to parlay the things I'm doing for the community into also working for my retirement as well in terms of, you know, working for university systems where I can get a pension out of it at the end. Um, I did a lot of, I did a lot of work in state prisons where I, where I logged a lot of government time. So I'm trying to build onto that for my pensions right now too, but oh still be able to affect change. So I, I like everything I'm doing because I can do both of those things at the same time. More books on the horizon, more research. Uh, I don't, I don't foresee, uh, I don't foresee that doesn't mean it wouldn't happen. Uh, I'm kind of getting out of the Gianneschi center business because I'm doing this foundation now. Um, I'm still going to be doing training on the book that I just wrote for at least a few more years, hopefully somewhere with some organization. Nice. But but I'm trans I'm transitioning out of doing the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofits, and um and and working for this foundation, kind of implementing what I've been telling others to do. But I'm still doing training and speaking and podcasting, and I enjoy doing that. We'll probably continue to do that. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm making way for someone else to take over that center. Well, it's fantastic. And of course, you've been a wonderful resource for dozens of organizations and hundreds of individuals. And thank you again for sharing your wisdom on this podcast. I, you know, as someone who is listening, thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership, and you, I'm sure, run into this a lot. Any other advice you would offer to someone who's thinking about getting into leadership in this sector? I I would say, you know, make your whole team into fundraisers, avoid yep. the big gala, smaller events, focus on um, your gathering of strategic partners and resources, your planning, your, your doing, and then your telling that marketing aspect is really important and is often ignored in our sector. And if you do that, you know, and build your consensus, uh, everything else will fall into place for you, I think. It's great advice. And I'm delighted to summarize it. That may be, in fact, the quote we put in the opening of the show notes uh, or somewhere along the way. Um, yeah. Can I add one more thing? Oh, please do. There's something that I talk a lot to my students about uh, in my soft skills for business class that I also talk to nonprofits about, and that's networking. There's this concept I teach in my, in my um, soft skills for business class. I teach, also teach for organizations. And it's this networking concept that actually goes with chemistry. It's the concept of structural holes. Have you ever heard this? No, tell me. So, you know, in molecular biology and chemistry, you have molecules that attach to each other because there's one atom that attracts one molecule to another and then one group to another and creates bigger stronger molecules and that that single atom is called the filler of structural holes because without that atom these molecules would have a hole they would never work together they would never talk to each other and they would all be duplicating resources and and be inefficient and they would never get bigger or stronger so that one person that joins one network like a pta and then joins a rotary club and then becomes a city commissioner and then you know ends up joining multiple networks that person ends up 
getting all these networks to talk to each other, which means they can share resources, which means they don't need as much resources on their own. Yeah, they become stronger. stronger than the other networks in the community and they raise up. And that person who's connecting them up becomes the strongest person in the community and is the most powerful person in the community that because they're the connector. And what I've found in my own work is that by getting involved in a lot of in-person, in real life, IRL networks, <laughs> as well as social networks online, that you become the connector, then you become what they now call the influencer, right? The person who is the thought leader, the influencer, those are the words of today, right? Um, who is connecting everyone up and that gives you more power. Wonderful illustration. And you're right. Instead of just saying you need to be better in networking, that illustrates it in a beautiful way. So thank you, Zoot, for sharing it, uh, adding it to the uh, many pieces of advice you've offered our listeners. Um, of course, we're going to lift up the wonderful publications, books, and resources you've got. Let me ask you, though, this, as I've asked every guest as a parting gift, has there been a book from someone else that has been particularly meaningful to you on your journey? Yes. So when I when I teach my classes, I always share uh, for undergraduates, I always share the three books that changed my life. So oh, if you good. don't mind me giving three books, I'll give three books. Love it. Spiritually, it's The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Yep. Uh, in terms of networking and business, it's How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's the first self, self-help book and I think still the best. Yes, indeed. Easy to read and lots, you know, the, the references are dated because it was written 100 years ago, but um, it's still the best. And then the third book, you're going to laugh at this, but I was raised poor. I wasn't raised with a, a parents who taught me. Um, personal finance. Sure. And so when I was an artist for 12 years, I was always in debt. I, and at one point I was $20,000 in debt and I read personal finance for dummies by Eric Tyson. <laughs> and uh, two good. years later, not... two years later, I had 20,000 in the bank and no debt and was buying my first house. I, uh, Hey, I am impressed and will happily add it to the list because, uh, there's a great need for financial literacy, isn't there, in yeah, every sector. So that is a great trio of recommendations. Zoot. Thank you for that. Where can people go to find out more about you and the great work you're doing across many fields? Thanks. If, uh, if they want to listen to my podcast, it's called 501c3BS. And you can take your own meeting from that. Uh, if they, <laughs> if they want to get trained in my seminars, it's on Zoom. It starts May 11th for eight weeks on Zoom on Wednesday afternoons. You can uh, find links to my books, my training, and my podcast all on my website, zootbelasco.com. It's fantastic. Zoot, thank you again for joining me on the path. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Pat, and it's been a pleasure. Well, I know you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and I hope you came away with some practical ideas from Zoot that can guide your professional journey and maybe help your nonprofit organization be more effective. Don't forget about the show notes available on our website, patentmcdowell.com. This is episode number 156. You can go there and find out more about all that Zoot is up to right now, including his latest book called Small to Large, the Gianneschi Fellows Program that he's in charge of as well as his fantastic podcast called 501C3BS. 
Yes, 501c3BS. Check it out. You'll learn even more. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you will see the follow button. And remember, follow equals subscribe. You can get on this podcast through any of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this episode, there are a whole lot more. Just click on the episodes button and you can get thumbnails for any of our past episodes. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path. 